0: Alright, good morning guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We are going through 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, continuing in that chapter this morning. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. Uh, in one of our black Bibles, we're going over to page 961. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 19 through 34 this morning. Before we jump in, I want to remind you, this whole series is a run-up to uh, Easter weekend, Resurrection Sunday, coming up in two weeks. And, uh, and on that weekend, we are changing our rhythms a little bit, and so I just want to make sure you're aware of that. We will have a Good Friday service uh, on Friday, April 19th at 7 o'clock, and that is a, uh, a solemn service of darkness. I would really encourage you to come. Uh, it is healthy for our souls, right? We love celebrations. We love triumph. We love, we love all things bright and beautiful. Um, but the reality is the resurrection finds its beauty uh, because of the path that Jesus took to get there. And on Good Friday, we sit in the heaviness of, um, of our sin. The fact that we needed a savior, that we needed a hero, that we needed someone who would die for us and, uh, and it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. Um, and, and simultaneously we're celebrating that it's His love that kept Him there. That, that we had that great of a need, but we also have that great of a Savior. That He was willing to die. And so join us on Good Friday, 7 o'clock, as we get together for a, a, uh, a, a service of, of music and uh, meditation in the Word uh, to prepare our hearts. And then on Silent Saturday, uh, which is um, Saturday... April 20th, not this coming Saturday, but the Saturday after, we will we will not be having our Saturday night services, okay? So on Silent Saturday, we're not going to try to celebrate the Resurrection Sunday uh, at a Saturday night service. And so we're canceling that service just for that week. And then on Easter morning, on Resurrection Sunday, uh, we're going to have three services. Uh, the first one will be at 7 a.m., our sunrise service, and then we'll have our normal 9 and 1045 as well. If you come to the sunrise service, we won't have childcare. Uh, so if you're an early riser with your kids, that's awesome. Uh, just have them sitting with you. Okay? And so that's the plan. I hope to see you uh, at our Good Friday as well as on our Easter Sunday services. All right, this morning we are looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34. Uh, We're jumping into uh, an argument that Paul is making uh, uh, in the middle of a conversation, so it's going to feel a little bit disjointed, especially if you've missed some of the other sermons. That's all right. I'll give you the context after we read it, starting in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so what we have is a a pretty sharp turn in tone and focus this week from last week. Um, Last week, uh, in the passage that we covered last week, man, Paul um, had a had a a triumphant and and joyful um, tone to to his description because he was he was laying out a glorious view of the road ahead of us as followers of Christ because Christ died and rose again, because he, he not only died, but rose, and not only rose, but rose as our first fruits. In other words, the first of a harvest, the first of many. We who are in Christ have the hope of the resurrection as well. He rose, we will rise, and, and because we will rise, we will enter into His kingdom, a kingdom of light, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of the flourishing of life. This this kingdom uh, will shine, and in its light, injustice will die. Every abuse of power will be suffocated, every abuser will be silenced. and even death will die. So Paul last week gave us this glorious vision of the road ahead of us. We look back and we see Christ crucified and risen again, and we look forward because he was our first fruits, and we see this path of blessing to blessing to blessing that we haven't earned but we've received as a gift of grace because our hero defeated death and rose again on our behalf. And I'm sure as Paul was writing this chapter and he wrote out that glorious vision of the future that he paused as those thoughts were still stirring in his mind and in his heart as he considered this beautiful kingdom before us, but he had to turn back his attention to the Corinthians. He had to turn around and, and address them. Let me remind you a little bit about the Corinthians. The Corinthians uh, were, were a New Testament church, not very healthy, <laughs> right? They are not, typically, you're not like, hey, I want to be like a Corinthian church, right? They, they, they were messed up. If there was a problem, they had it. And, and if there's a problem you haven't thought of yet, they probably had that too. I mean, it was just a, 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 a difficult uh, community. And so this letter, when you read through 1 Corinthians, it seems disjointed. He goes from topic to topic to topic. That's because he's either answering questions that they've asked or defending himself against questioners in, in their community. It is, it is a community in which there are those who, who have who have deep and deep and, and Uh, unsettling questions that are disrupting their faith, and He is gently and pastorally coming alongside them to encourage them and strengthen their faith and answer their questions, while simultaneously trying to silence or at least confront those that are questioning Him, those that are trying to undermine His authority and minimize His apostolic uh, ministry because of jealousy. They they want Him diminished because somehow they think that makes them greater. They want to pull followers away after themselves, and, and to do that, they feel like they have to undermine The authority and the work of Paul or God in Paul. And as a result, man, this community is is marked by division and competition and mistrust. And and so Paul turns from considering the glorious future ahead of us as followers of Christ to address his spiritual children. And you can sense a little bit of his sorrow, a little bit of his weariness in the paragraph we've read today. It's, It's a little disjointed, the, the Greek grammar is, is a little awkward. Um, there are things that, that I mean, it, it's always, there are some pieces here that are really hard to interpret, partly because he doesn't give us the context for what he's saying. He just kind of throws some stuff out there. Maybe the Corinthians understood. Maybe, maybe Paul was just uh, a little intense and wasn't thinking, you know, clearly about, man, how am I going to, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so there's some stuff here, but, but there's a reason for that. Because, because Paul is like turning back to them and saying, do you see the vision I've just shown you? This vision of this glorious future, do you see it? Do you believe it? Like, do you really believe it? Not just, not just do you have a mental assent. Is it, is it part of your doctrinal framework? Is, is it part of your philosophical, philosophically accepted understanding of the world? Do you believe it? No? Not yet? Then let me see if I can wake you up a little more. Let me see if I can rattle the cage and wake you up a little more to this glorious truth. And that's what's happening in the paragraph that we're digging into today. There are two sections to the paragraph. The first is a series of rhetorical questions where Paul is basically saying, look, if, if, if you claim to believe these things, you can't believe these things without believing the resurrection. There's, a, there's an incongruity. It doesn't make sense. right? If you're going to claim you believe this, you can't reject this. Um, and then in the second portion, um, he, he comes at us with an appeal to actually live in the light of this beautiful truth so let's deal with the first section first these this string of rhetorical questions <laughs> the first one of course is the doozy uh the one that that people read and they're like what in the world is he talking about right take a look at verse uh 29 otherwise what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all why are people baptized on their behalf and we're like yeah what huh Where, when does that what? what baptism on behalf of the dead what, they did that who did that? What does that mean, right? Um, so as I was reading this and studying this this week, um, no joke, I, I came across around 40 different interpretations of what this means. What that tells you is nobody knows, okay? Nobody, I don't know, right? I, I have a strong conviction about what it's not saying, and I have a pretty strong conviction about what it is saying, um, but exactly, nailing down the linguistics of it is difficult because it is, a, it is an awkward uh, series of questions. Um, so I'm not going to exhaust you this morning with all the options. <laughs> what I'm going to do is just tell you what I don't think it's saying and tell you what I do think it is. So, so what, what do I think it's not saying? I don't think Paul is actually describing any form of proxy baptism. Proxy baptism is when one person is baptized on behalf of someone else. I don't think that's what Paul's describing. Um, and, and, and there are a number of different flavors of this view right, there are some that say that, that early Christians were being baptized on behalf of other early Christians who were martyred before they could be baptized, right? So there were people who became believers, they were martyred without being able to be baptized, and maybe somebody saw that, and, and in fact, their bold faith, their loving sacrifice was so moving to them that they became believers in Christ. And so when they were baptized in, in for themselves, they also thought, man, I want to be baptized for them, they were believers, and they didn't get to do it. So I will be a proxy. It'll be a proxy baptism. I will be baptized on their behalf. There are others that that say that um, what Paul is describing is a, a, a practice of being baptized over the dead, uh, like literally the on behalf of is a is a Greek preposition who pair. It can mean for on behalf of over. There's a whole range of meanings, which is part of the difficulty of figuring out exactly what's going on here. Uh, but literally, what they they would say is literally is that that people were being baptized over the graves of Christian dead on behalf of the dead. So, so they were identifying with the martyrs who had gone before and basically saying, I'm taking your place in the community. I'm not replacing you, but it's like there's this number of believers and as it gets reduced through martyrdom, others come and believe and, and the population is increasing. So they're being baptized over the graves of those that had gone before uh, with the idea that I'm being baptized on their behalf to replace them in the Christian community. There's, there's a third group, um, those that believe that Paul's describing baptism for unbelieving dead. So in other words, maybe you have a close friend or a family relative or somebody that you desperately love and, and um, they didn't hear the gospel or they heard the gospel and rejected it. And, and you decide, I want to be baptized on their behalf, so I'll be baptized on behalf of the dead. Um, certain groups like the Mormons practice this. Uh, the idea that somehow if I do this on their behalf, it's going to become salvific for them. They might be saved because of, of my work for them. Uh, I'll do this good work for them and it'll be attributed to them and they'll get some, you know, some benefit as a result. All right, so, so first of all, let me just make it clear. There, there are more. <laughs> I'm just not going to go into them. Uh, I absolutely reject all of these views. I think proxy baptism is absolutely counter um, and and unsupportable, both historically and theologically. Historically, we have absolutely no evidence that the church ever practiced proxy baptisms uh, until splinter groups much later, right? So in the early church, there's absolutely no historical evidence that anyone was ever baptized on behalf of someone else, proxy baptism. Just, there's no record of it. So you have to totally read it into the historical record. You have to say, well, that must have been what they're doing, and we just don't know about it, which I think is, is foolishness, because secondly, it's completely counter the theology of baptism itself. The point of baptism is that, is that when you are baptized, you are buried into the death of Christ and raised again in the resurrection of Christ. You are celebrating what Christ has done, not what you do. There's no merit to your baptism. It's not a good work that earns you anything with God. It doesn't gain anything. It's a celebration of what God has gained. It's a celebration of what He has done. To try to turn it into some kind of good work where somehow that good work could then be attributed to somebody else undermines the theology of baptism itself. Baptism is a celebration of Christ, not me, His obedience, not mine, His accomplishment. It's a resting in the grace that flows to me because of the death and resurrection of Christ, not a declaration that I do something that earns it, right? So, so proxy baptism it makes no sense historically. It makes absolutely no sense theologically. So if it doesn't mean proxy baptism, what, what does it mean? Well, I think Paul just has a really awkwardly worded sentence here, okay? And I think what he's saying is if you don't believe in the resurrection, baptism makes no sense. Right? Why are you being baptized if you don't believe in resurrection? Because baptism itself is a celebration of resurrection. It's a celebration of the resurrection of Christ, but it's also a celebration of the fact that I get unified with Christ in His death and His resurrection. W.E. Vine, a New Testament scholar, um, changes the punctuation of the sentence a little bit. Some of you are like, wait, 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 you can't mess with the Bible like that. Um, Well, let me remind you that in the original Greek manuscripts, um, there is no punctuation, right? In the Koine Greek, they wrote in all capital letters with no spacing, no punctuation, no paragraph breaks, okay? So we have these documents, and, and we have to determine where the punctuation goes. Right? That's why different versions sometimes translate differently, because different translators may say, well, we think this should be uh, a, a period here, or a comma here, or, or a paragraph break here. We're the ones that put in the numbers, the chapter breaks, and, and the, the, uh, the verse breaks, things like that. Right. Um, and so what W.E. Vine says is, is if we repunctuate this, it makes a little bit more sense. He says, why in the world would you be baptized? Put the question mark there. Because baptism is for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why be baptized at all? In other words, you are dead in your sins, and you are dead in your dying body. It's only a matter of time, right? Of course, you're alive, but, but we all know we are alive in dying bodies, and, and, and death is inevitable for all of us, right? Why be baptized, O dead person, if there's no resurrection? He's just saying it's a logical fallacy. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you declare your faith in a risen Savior if there's no resurrection? Why would you declare your celebration that you have been raised in Christ if there's no resurrection? It doesn't make sense. Now, this leads right into the the next series of rhetorical questions where Paul says, Why, then, am I in danger? In verse 30, every hour, verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? if the dead are not raised. So he shifts. He's like, all right, not only does baptism not make sense, y'all have been baptized believers, right? And now you want to question the resurrection? Well, you've all seen the ministry of the apostles. Corinth was started, right? Those people heard about the gospel because Paul himself paid a dear price to come and share the gospel, the good news of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus with them. They believed it, formed this community. He's like, he's like you've seen The sacrifice and the testimony and the work of the apostles and of of me, Paul, if there's no resurrection, why would I do what I do? If there's no resurrection, how do you explain that 12 bumbling, confused, prideful, competitive disciples overnight became so driven, so focused, so humble that they transformed the world? How do you explain that? If there's no resurrection of the dead, if they all got together and just kind of said, hey, y'all, why don't we just make up this story? It'll be like the greatest prank in human history. We'll pretend Jesus rose from the dead, and we'll all just agree to it, right? And then we'll go out there and we'll tell this lie. And then we're going to live lives of tremendous suffering. We'll keep telling people about it, and they'll keep rejecting us and putting us in prison and physically harming us, and then we'll all be martyred. Some of us will be crucified upside down. Some of us skinned alive. Some of us beheaded. Yeah, that, if you believe uh, that a conspiracy theory could withstand that kind of pressure, you have much greater faith than it takes for me to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Right? People don't do that. If, if people are going to make up a lie, it's because somehow they benefit from it. If they're going to have some sort of secret agreement, it's because in that secret agreement, somehow they think they're going to be better off. They lost everything. Paul's like, look at my life. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I I was on a path of success. I was a rising star in Judaism. People were paying attention to me and following me. I was well known. And then on a dime, he walked away from it all. And not only did he walk away from it all, he came back preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus at great personal cost. Paul had been stoned numerous times, like physically with rocks, right? Physically with rocks. He was was stoned to the point of death. He he had been persecuted, misrepresented, abused. the, The wild beasts at Ephesus is a reference to Acts chapter 19, where the entire city rises up against Paul to kill him. Right? He's metaphorically saying, they were like, it was like facing the wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum. I faced these people. Why would I do that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? Why would I do that if I was not convinced I also would rise from the dead? He's saying, look, there's no logical reason. If I didn't believe it, why would I suffer? Because I die daily. I pay the price of carrying this message every day. I suffer on behalf of Christ who suffered for me every day, and I do it gladly, and I do it with joy. How do you explain that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead? He concludes by saying, look, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead we might as well say, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, right? At at the end of verse thirty two, if if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And some of you are like, sweet, that sounds like a much better alternative. Kinda of describes my life right now, honestly. Waiting this afternoon to go to a new restaurant. Can't wait. Fried chicken skins. Yes, right? We're always trying to find new food to eat, new, new something to drink. You know, here's the thing Paul's not describing this as, as why don't we, if this, if this isn't true, let's go live lives of joy. That's not what he's describing. That, that saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, that, that's not describing an everlasting party of joy. That's describing people who are self medicating, trying to run from the creeping edge of despair. People that are trying to just run from from distraction to distraction, pleasure to pleasure, experience to experience, because when the experience is over, the emptiness returns. The darkness of despair starts creeping and spreading within their soul. He's not describing something beautiful or fun or celebratory. This is like the middle aged guy that's never stopped partying. Right? And we all know there's, there's no joy in his party. He's just running. He's desperately afraid of not being drunk. Desperately afraid of the quiet moments when he has to actually sit with himself and deal with the reality of his existence because there's no meaning and no purpose. And all there is is distraction. What Paul is describing isn't a celebration, it's despair. So Paul is saying, look, my life, the lives of the apostles, the baptism that you've embraced, none of it makes sense without the resurrection. Here's the thing, you're tempted. They were tempted, and listen, we are too. They were tempted to want the benefits of the gospel without the historical foundation of the gospel. They wanted the benefits, right? They wanted grace. They wanted community. They wanted joy. They wanted forgiveness. They wanted the removal of guilt and the removal of shame. They, they, they wanted feel-good messages. They, they wanted someplace that was going to fill their tank and help them get through the week. They, they wanted all these good things. But they wanted the good things, that the benefits of the gospel without the historical foundations of the gospel. Listen to me. You cannot have the good stuff and leave the stuff you find offensive or intellectually challenging at the door. You don't get the benefit of the gospel without the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The bloody cross and the empty tomb are foundational to the blessings that flow from this good news. You cannot have the blessings without the historical reality. Why is there baptism? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Why is there joy in baptism? Because as we are baptized we get the benefits of what he's accomplished. Why did the apostles suffer? Because they were convinced it was the absolute best way to invest their lives. It was joy for them, not pain. They were living for something beyond temporary pleasure and distraction. Why did Paul lay down his life every single day, risking it and dying daily? Because every single day he was being made alive in his hope and in his joy because of the resurrection of Christ, knowing as well that one day he would be made fully alive in the actual resurrection that would flow to him because Christ himself had been raised. So the rhetorical questions designed to get us to question, if I believe this, what makes me think I would want to or could reject this? It's, it's a package, right? We get a hard shift in verse 33. In verse 33, Paul of a sudden just is like, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Uh, it's kind of like the sound of the, the needle sliding across the record, right? right? What in the world? Why are you talking about bad company corrupting good morals? This passage has absolutely nothing to do with ethical behavior right? He's not admonishing us to, to reject some kind of bad behavior or sinful choices and, and live more godly lives. I mean, this is all about believing in the resurrection. Why in the world, buried in the middle of this, is all of a sudden he's quoting this thing about, about bad company corrupting good morals. You better have good friends, y'all. They're going to end up in strip clubs. Um, I'll tell you why. Because he is quoting, first of all, a, 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 colloquial, a colloquialism, a truism, and, and adapting it to his argument, so a colloquialism is just—it's it's just, it's just um, street-level wisdom, right? We have a lot of sayings like that, right? Uh, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. I'm sure you say that every day, or your grandfather does. I don't know, right? But but somebody says it, and you've heard it, right? And we all know what it means: the thing that I have is better than the thing that I don't have, even if it looks better, right? And so we know that. So Paul is quoting a a truism, right? A a, a, a street-level wisdom saying of of bad company corrupts good morals, and he's applying it to this argument. See, what he's saying is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You're you're going to be tempted to be deceived. Don't don't be deceived. You are influenced by the people you allow in. You are influenced by the voices you allow in in your life. You are influenced by the friends that you choose. You are influenced by the people you go out to dinner with. You are influenced by by the way they view the world, by the way they talk about their problems, by by the way they, they, they think about and engage their faith. You are influenced by them. You're not just with them. You're not just around them. You are shaped by them, right? You are shaped by your friends. You are shaped by your podcasts and, and, and your distractionary behaviors, right? The podcasts you tune into, the, the entertainment choices you make, the, the, these, there are worldviews, there are ways of thinking about life that are embedded in all of these forms that shape us. Listen, if you listen, if you tune into Fox News 24 hours a day, it's going to change you because they have a very, very specific view of the world. If you tune into Huffington Post 24 hours a day and you read everything they post, it will change you because they have a view of the world. Listen, it's foolish for us to think that we can be around things without being shaped by things, and what ends up happening is, is we tend to gravitate toward those things that make us feel comfortable and, and it helps we engage it, and while we're engaging it, it shapes us, and we continue to engage it, and we continue to be shaped, and we don't even see how we're being changed. That it's actually increasing our fear of certain things, increasing our pride in certain areas, increasing our... our it's changing us. See, Paul is saying, don't be deceived. It's deceptive, but it's real. See, I saw this all the time in, in high school when I was in my previous life, when I was a teacher and a principal, right, at lunchtime. a uh, Wonderful socio, uh, sociological experiment at lunch, right? Um, people come in and they have to choose where to sit. And I know some of you are like, man, that's so painful. I know, I kept my eye out for the introvert who was really weird and awkward, and, and I tried to help them, right? I made friends with them, and right, as an adult who was weird and awkward as a teenager. A lot of affinity there, right? Um, but it was fun to watch because you got all the jocks sitting with the jocks, Right, and what ends up happening is over the course of the year, you can see what would happen. They all look the same. They're all wearing kind of the same stuff. And and one day, one somebody would show up wearing something a little bit different, and then a week later, a couple more, and then pretty soon they're all wearing it. Right? It's like, oh wow, that was funny, and they didn't even notice it was happening. Right? They're being shaped. Right? It happened with the band too, y'all. It's not just the jocks. It was the band people too. I loved the way the nonconformists nonconformed exactly like all the other nonconformists. Right? That was my favorite. All the punk rockers or the emos, all try, choosing to be nonconformists, and exactly like all the others, um, wearing the same exact kind of nonconforming clothes. Right? Don't be deceived. You are shaped by the company you keep. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. See, Paul's assertion here, he's not worried that your bad company is going to lead you to the strip club right now. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the bad company that will lead you to see the world in a way that undercuts your faith in the gospel. He's worried about the people that are going to be in your life that slowly but progressively corrode your joy in grace. He's talking about the voices in your life that will undercut your confidence of faith. He's talking about the influences in your life that will subtly come in and undermine your hope in the resurrection and in the breaking in of the kingdom of God. Bad company corrupts good morals. See, we're wired for community. We need it. So we will choose to be around people. We gravitate toward community. We, We can't help ourselves. You're like, no, dude, I'm totally a solo flyer. I, I like to be completely isolated. Not true. You, would, you wouldn't be here, right? There are people like that that are completely withdrawn, and they are some of the weirdest and most dangerous people around. I mean, it's just it's not normal to be a, a hermit completely isolated from, from human culture. You're not wired for that. It distorts you in ways. We are wired for community. God designed us to need each other. You gravitate toward people, and you give them a voice in your life. You need to be intentional about the voices you allow in. You need to be intentional about who you allow to shape your view of the world. Because you need people. You need people who are going to renew your experience of grace. You need voices in your life that are going to awaken you to the wonder of the love of God. You need voices in your life that are going to remind you on your best day or on your worst day that your greatest problem has already been solved and your greatest debt has already been paid. You need people to remind you that because Jesus died and rose again, you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to fix yourself. You can rest knowing you are loved exactly as you are and that the love God gives you exactly as you are won't leave you as you are. God will change you. It's not even your responsibility to change yourself for God. God will change you. He will conform you into the image of His Son. He will produce the transformation you desperately know you need. You need voices that are going to remind you to stop trying to prove yourself, perform for yourself, impress others, to to promote people for self-gain or to diminish others for self-protection. You need people in your life to remind you to see the world in light of the resurrection. Bad company corrupts good morals. Good company builds our faith. Good company gives us boldness. Good company increases our joy. Good company ignites our hope. Don't be deceived. You need people around you that are going to give you a far-seeing vision and wisdom for life. Remind you to to see what is ahead of you. The power of hope, y'all, we can't overstate it. We all are driven by our hope the question isn't whether or not you're going to be driven by your hope the question is where are you going to anchor your hope every single day you get up it's because you hope you hope for something right you you, you hope for a promotion you hope for a job increase you hope for uh, a pleasant breakfast you, you you know a few quiet moments over coffee where the kids aren't insane maybe maybe you're hoping that for a relationship you're hoping for a prom- you know whatever it is you have hopes. The question is, where's your ultimate hope? So when I was in college, um, I was from California, and I remember that, that first year, I had a bunch of friends that were from the Midwest. We were in Iowa, and they're like, man, we've never been to California. And I'm like, let's, let's do something fun. Let's take a Greyhound bus from Dubuque, Iowa to San Diego. We'll stay with my mom, right? I'll show you Southern California. We're like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So we had like forty-five hours of greyhound bussing across the country. Um, that that was a little less than fun, but I do remember the morning that we pulled in uh, to Las Vegas. I've shared this story before. I'll share it again um, because it had a huge impact on me. Right, we we get off the bus. It's early, early in the morning, right before sunrise. So it's still dark and I remember getting off the bus and, and we were at a the bus stop was, was up above the strip on a hill and I remember getting out and just kinda of stretching and looking down and, and looking down at the strip you know, you just see all these bright lights, all of the neon, all of the moving stuff, and you hear the alluring bing, bing, bangs of all the slot machines, and and there are people moving around in the dark, and you're like, oh, what are they doing down there? They look like they're having fun, like there's something in you that's like, hmm, I'm up here, but that looks really good down there, right? I mean, there's a little piece of me. It's like, I've never been to a casino. Now, I was also 17 years old, but, uh, you know, it's like, I'm sure I could walk in and, and you know, I've, been, I've not noticed. Like, there's this... So what ends up happening, though, is as I'm standing there, the, the sunrise comes up. The, the glorious light of the sun comes over the eastern horizon and the darkness in the sky starts to fade. And the light of the sun fills this valley. And as the light of the sun fills the valley, suddenly these neon lights aren't as bright they're definitely not as alluring and the big big bangs are not as seductive and the people that are moving around on the street definitely don't look like they're having fun people that are out walking the strip that time of the day it just makes you sad and as the glory of the sun comes up it exposes the lesser glory the alluring deceptive glory of so this is what i'm saying When we have our hope rooted in the resurrection, not only the resurrection of Christ back then, but the future resurrection of the believer, like I will be raised again into the glorious kingdom of God. When I have my ultimate hope anchored there, it so fills my vision with glory that it allows me to see the lesser hopes for what they are. It's not that they're not good, they're just not ultimate. They're good things. Relationships are good things, right? Raises are good things. Jobs are good things. Kids are good things most days, right? They're, they're good things, right? But they're not ultimate things. They're not ultimate things. When our hope is anchored in our hope in Christ, when our hope, when our, when our hope is anchored there, it allows us to have courage when our lesser hopes fail. It allows us to have comfort when there's sorrow. It allows us to have courage when they're suffering. See, if your passion is for a, a low maintenance, hassle-free life, if that's where you've anchored your hope, you're in for a lot of suffering. A lot of cowardice, a lot of pain, and a lot of disappointment. Because it's during this age, we all suffer. All of our hopes disappoint us, even the ones that come to fruition. The question is, where do we anchor our ultimate hope? And you know what, y'all? We can't do this alone. You can't just decide, okay, I'm going to anchor my hope in the resurrection of Christ. I am going to remind myself every single day that one day I too will rise, that I am an eternal being covered in the very righteousness of Christ. I will shine like the sun. Yeah, that'll last for like 30 seconds. And then somebody will say something that hurts your feelings or something bad will happen on the road or you'll get behind the slow driver. Y'all, we need each other. I need you to remind me who I am in Christ. I need you to remind me of my hope. I need you to remind me of the glory that is mine in Christ, of the glorious future. I need you to remind me when I'm overwhelmed with the brokenness of this world that that brokenness itself will die. I need you to remind me when I am tempted to find my identity in the glory of this world, that the glory of this world is like filthy rags compared to the glory that is mine in Christ. I need you to remind me that my greatest debt is paid and my greatest problem is solved, that I am loved and I am secure. And a hundred years from now, I will not regret any sacrifice I've made for the kingdom of God. I need you to remind me. And you need others to remind you. In the last verse, Paul drives this home a little bit more in verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on singing, sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. So here's the thing. The default mode of the human heart is not joy in grace. Right? When you relax and you just kind of fall into the rut of your normal rhythms, you're not awake to the beauty of the gospel, to the power of God, to this surpassing uh, power of the hope that we have in the kingdom of God. Right? When you settle into the rut of the human heart, you settle into a drunken stupor of worldliness. Right? You're just like, all you see is, is the short-sighted gutter in front of you, the challenge of the blessing that's right there. And, and you're like, if I get that blessing, then I'll be okay. And if I get this challenge, my life's going to end. That's the default mode of the human heart. And Paul is saying, wake up. Wake up. Let this teaching be like like a, a splash of cold water across your drunk face. And wake up. Wake up to the reality of the breaking in of the kingdom of God. Wake up to the power of the resurrection. Wake up to this greater hope. Now, wake up. Stop stumbling through life in your drunken stupor. Wake up! You need to allow the resurrection to so shine in your thinking that every decision you make is made in its light. You need to allow the resurrection of Christ to be so bright in your motivation that it influences your every motive and your every value. That you you can see all things in light of this glorious truth which gives you the courage to face the hard stuff. It gives you the hope to engage the broken stuff. It, it It gives you the faith To face the impossible stuff. And it gives you the hope you need. You need people in your life that are reminding you. You need people in your life that are throwing that cold water across your face in a refreshing and sometimes startling way. You need people in your life doing this. But you know what? You don't just need people in your life doing this. You need to be doing it how incredibly selfish and self-centered it is for us to come into the community of Christ and say, what are you doing for me? Let me evaluate how you're helping me wake up. Let me evaluate how you're encouraging me without also evaluating how am I encouraging you. This is not about you coming to the smorgasbord of Christian experience and choosing which people are going to be a blessing to you. Wake up! Wake up! This only works if we commit together in community. If I feel an obligation to encourage your faith, to strengthen your hope, to remind you of the glorious truths of the gospel. See, the, the beauty of grace is it's like a boomerang, man. You gotta throw it to get it back. You gotta move in the generosity of grace to receive the encouragement of grace. Who is God in calling you to encourage? Who can you be the reminder to that God loves them, that God is for them, that they have not been abandoned, that their hope is not futile, that in their sorrow they are not broken, and in their success they are not puffed up in pride. Paul is saying, there are people in your community, Corinthians, there are people in your church community who aren't believers. Now, that in and of itself isn't a problem. That's a good thing. I love it when there are unbelievers in the church community peeking over the fence into Christianity, trying to discern, man, is this for me? Is there something here that's real? I, that's wonderful, and I feel honored anytime time an unbeliever comes into our midst and is like, let me find out more about you. The problem here, Paul is saying, is look, there are, there are unbelievers in your community that are driven by lesser hopes, and they can't tell the difference between themselves and you. There are unbelievers in your community who do not know they are unbelievers because there's no difference between what drives them and what drives you. They look at their hopes and they see no difference because you are driven by the same short-sighted, secondary hopes that drive them. Paul says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame, whether it's politics, common ground of politics, common ground of economics, common ground of, 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 of social passion, we, we care share a common zeal for, for reforming culture in specific ways, or social justice issues, or, or maybe there are other things like our, our, our art, or our or entrepreneurial activities, or, or our, our networking, or, or um, our sports, Our families, our jobs. Paul says, You have an obligation, not just to yourself, you have an obligation to your community to wake up. Because you're not just harming yourself, you are not the only one paying the price for your drunken stupor. And the price some people will pay is staggeringly high. Y'all, we need to have our hope anchored in the resurrection. We need to be motivated by this greater motivation. We need to allow this to give us genuine courage, to give us genuine hope, to increase our faith and to expand our joy. I need you to help me stay anchored in that hope, and you need me. Let's not settle for stumbling through life together in the same direction in our drunken stupor, self-medicating with our distractions, content with, with such small dreams of money, material wealth, temporary relationships and fame what small dreams for the lives of eternal beings who are destined to shine in the kingdom of god let's encourage each other let's come alongside each other let's love each other well and remind ourselves of the deeper armor love that we share that flows from the death and resurrection of Christ. Let's let that be the center of our conversations, of the encouragement we offer one another, of of the joy that we share with one another, of the hope that we work together for. Let's, Let's let the kingdom of God so bleed through our thinking, so flow from our hearts, that we expand the boundaries of all of our joy and we increase the strength of all of our faith. Wake up. Wake up. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Let pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of infinite patience. Because <laughs> if you weren't, man, we'd be in trouble. We, we are so distracted. We are so easily uh, deceived and, and drawn away by the flashing lights and the, and the, the sounds. And, and man, we just, we chase every shiny thing. And when it disappoints us, we just turn around and chase something else. Spirit, will you wake us up? We need you to do it. Will you you create within us an appetite for the kind of joy that overcomes the sufferings of this world? Will you you give us an appetite for the kind of faith that sees the world not as a place to keep and to hold and protect, but as a place to give and to love and to invest, knowing that a hundred years from now, we will see each other in our true glory hundred years from now, we will be gathered around that throne singing praises to the one who died and rose again a hundred years from now. Lord, give us that kind of vision that allows us to be anchored in our true and lasting hope that keeps us from being deceived by the secondary hopes that seek to, to grab our hearts and enslave our motivations. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.